Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Today, we'll highlight a second innovative program featured in a recent CityLab article titled The Race to Learn What's Really Happening in Opioid Crisis. The program we'll be talking about today is an overdose detection mapping program, better known as ODMAP. Joining me once again is Linda Poon, an assistant editor at CityLab covering science and urban technology. We'll also be joined today by Tom Carr, the executive director of the High Intensity Drug Trafficking Areas program in Washington, D.C., who led the development of the ODMAP program. We begin our discussion with Linda. So I think you understand the sort of significance of that. You have to understand how, what, what is lacking in it in the current collection of data. Um, I mentioned the sort of undercount, but I also uh, report on the fact that there's this huge lag time when opioid overdose information is collected. Um, It can take up to a year for the national government to publish data. And even with preliminary data, um, it can take up several months. So there, there is this lag time that prevents cities from being more proactive. So what the OD map, um, for short, does is sort of trying to get a real-time count of who is overdosing um, on opioids. And the way they're doing that is they're uh, giving this, this, this app to first responders. And every time they respond to a case that may be a opioid-related case, they can uh, put in the information, and the information gets is uh, immediately sent to sort of a dash dashboard that health officials can then use. And what the health health officials sees are um, data dots that sort of pop up on a map, sort of almost in real time. And that helps them. Um, for one thing, it helps the agency monitor drug trafficking. So it kind of gives an idea, um, you know, where the drugs are coming in if they see, like, huge spikes in certain areas. Um, And then after the fact, it it also does the same thing where we can see where people are overdosing so cities can sort of target their um, uh, interventions a little bit more specifically. Next, I spoke with Tom Carr, who led the development of the ODMAP program. Heroin has been a problem in the Washington, Baltimore area since the 1950s, especially in Baltimore City. Um, But because of the opioid epidemic, uh, there was a meeting held in in August of uh, 2016 in Baltimore City, chaired by the uh, head of public health for Baltimore. And during that meeting, uh, which was attended by police and fire and drug court judges and medical doctors and the like, it was mentioned that they needed a way to identify when there were spikes in overdose usage uh, in the in the city, uh, and no one really knew how to do that. And then one of the doctors sitting next to me quirked that there ought to be an app for that. So that was a Friday. On that Monday, I came back to my team 
and talk to them about what I would like to see them develop, and they promised me they could do that, and I said, fine, you have 30 days, and then sure enough, they developed a, an app or a web service that works on a smartphone within 30 days that could uh, detect spikes in overdose usage, and we've been developing it ever since. And how long did it take to uh, deploy that? We started deployment in January of 2017. Uh, we tried it with three counties, one county in Maryland, two counties in West Virginia. And after a few months, we then went nationwide with it. So right now it's in um, 37 states. There are over 1,300 users, uh, and we have over 34,000 overdose incidents reported in the system. And we're still walking it out. Wow. So... Tell us a little bit about, let's go down a level in terms of how that, what that program is recording and how it works. Okay, well, there are two levels to ODMAP. The first level is the uh, level one, which is the entry level. So first responders at the scene of an overdose can use their web service on their smartphone or the computer. Now we also use an uh, application programming interface or API to tie into CAD systems, but what they do at the scene is they press a button whether or not it's fatal or non-fatal, whether or not naloxone was admitted or not admitted. That information then is geocoded, uh, and uh, once confirmed by the first responder, it's instantly sent to a map. Level two users are usually agency level users that uh, have access to the map. And by access to the map, I mean they have access to all the data um, whether or not it was from their jurisdiction or not. So we're tracking this as a disease. This is a syndromic surveillance system. So we're actually watching the spread of the bad drugs or the drug spikes take place uh, across the country. So how quickly can you detect that? Are you, are you to the point now where you're at critical mass in terms of the rollout for this, where you can, you can notice in a particular geographic area where some bad stuff is coming in? Yes, we can. Well, we can do more than that. We can forecast. So we know now from looking at the data that we've received that if, for example, if there's a spike in Anne Arundel County, Maryland, Within um, a matter of hours, there's likely to be a spike in Berkeley County, West Virginia. So when we send out spike alerts, and they're automatic, done by the system, um, we also, for, for Anne Arundel County, we would also send a spike alert to Berkeley County so they would be aware that uh, the drugs are likely to be coming in their area. The same holds true for Philadelphia. When Philadelphia has spikes, uh, we notice that there's a, a subsequent spike likely to take place in two counties in Maryland. So you've probably got some specific examples of where this came into play already and where it's made a difference in the opioid epidemic. Can you share those? Yeah, well, there are a couple things. We First of all, this system was designed for, for public health use. Um, and uh, when we first got the system working, uh, public health was a little little baffled as to what the, they could they could or should do with the with the information. So we've worked with them and developed a framework to uh, give them some guidance as to what steps they might want to take, insofar as messaging and the like when a spike occurs in their area. Police are used to dealing with um, uh, data like this, 
uh, and sometimes the police in in, uh, in Long Island, uh, New York, for example, the police look at the data and determine that there there must be drug trafficking going on uh, in that area. Uh, they send undercover teams out, and they made a number of arrests. And the, some of those people that were users were referred to treatment, but the ones that were dealing the drugs for profit were uh, charged with criminal offenses. And that type of activity is going on in all the areas now that are using ODMAP. Wow. So the scope of the usage of this and the applicability is, it sounds like, far broader than what you had initially envisioned, the scope of this. Yeah, we learn from it more every day. I mean, it's amazing what you can do with just a few pieces of data. If you look at it, all we're looking at is the date and time uh, and the location of the suspected and suspected overdose incident. And with that, we're able to do quite a bit, quite a few things. For example, comparing that data with other data that we have in our databases, we can produce a list of names, and we have, and, and continue to do so, give it to public health of the people who are likely to die next. And we give it to public health in the hopes that they will do an intervention to try and get these people into treatment. Wait, you give names? You give names of people that are likely to die yeah. next? Yes. It's not rocket science. What we're doing is in our databases, we're looking at police um, reports uh, and seeing from the police reports uh, who has overdosed more than once in a short period of time. Often these people may be treated by or, or uh, confronted by one police department uh, at 1 o'clock, another police department or another police officer at 4 o'clock, another police department at 8 o'clock where they've overdosed and been, been um, revived through Narcan. But the police don't look at it that way. The police traditionally don't compare those incidents. We're comparing those incidents and saying this person is sick, this person needs treatment, and we're giving the names of those people who do or who are involved in multiple overdoses to public health. Wow. So that brings about a question of HIPAA. What about HIPAA laws? What about them? Well, many communities, when you approach this and you start to talk about identifying names, at that point... Identify the RK. Police, the police are exempt from HIPAA. Uh, and when we're looking at police reports, HIPAA doesn't come into play. As far as OD map goes, we're not mapping. We're mapping near the address. We're not mapping exact addresses. And there's no way you can tell the, the individual from the point on the map. So, so we're protecting the privacy of individuals. So there's no violation there whatsoever. No. Okay. No, we've had it. There have been attorneys look at this, and uh, there's no violation. And we're very concerned about that. We don't want to unduly expose people to um, government agencies. On the other hand, we do want people that have uh, that are harming themselves. Uh, we would like to see them get into treatment. Now, for other states that uh, haven't gotten involved yet, and other agencies, how would they approach that? Well, they just need to contact us at the Washington Baltimore Haida. Uh, they can go to our website, or they can call us directly. Is there any cost associated with the program for a community? It's it's absolutely free. How long? Our does... our, our job is to help people manage data, uh, and that's what we're doing here. We're we're, t we're gathering data and we're helping them manage that data and use the data to make more informed decisions. 
on average, what kind of uh, resources does it take to roll it out, and how how long for a community? Well, it, I mean, once a community des- decides it wants to do it, uh, it, it takes a matter of seconds for us to make the connection uh, to that community electronically. Uh, it's a short couple-hour training for the uh, first responders uh, to uh, learn how to use the, the system itself. What we're uh, having uh, to take more time with is that these level two users, the uh, agency heads, to show them how they can actually interpret the data. Wow. What final thoughts would you have, Tom, um, that uh, our uh, audience would uh, should know about the system? Well, I mean, as far as final thoughts go, I think that people need to realize that that the drug epidemic that we're facing, particularly the opioid epidemic, has basically two sides to it. One side are the, those that are preying on the on the those that are sick, those that are addicted, and they're selling drugs for profit. The other side is those people that are sick, and we want to get the people that are sick into some type of treatment to get them better, make them more productive, and to save their lives. We have another system that's purely law enforcement that, again, that that, uh, collects the data from overdose incidents that are investigated as crime scenes. Um, And not for the purpose of arresting the individual, but for gathering information from them. Um, And we can then, as as I mentioned, we can determine whether or not that individual has overdosed more than once in a short period of time. Uh, we can also, through other other investigative actions, determined um, who their dealer was. How does that work? <laughs> that's a tool. That's a trick of the trade. I won't. I won't tell you that, but we can. Hmm. Well, that's got to be really powerful in terms of going upstream to get the big fish, so to speak. Well, it is. Uh, these are the people that are bringing the, bringing the poison into the community, uh, and that's who we want to get rid of. So we want to cut off the supply, but we also want to work more so on the demand side. This also, you know, another thing when you look at this, this really pinpoints where you ought to do not only treatment, but you ought to do your prevention work. You get more uh, uh, mileage out of your dollar if you can prevent this from ever happening. So these, you know, where these incidents are taking place also symbolized us, the school systems, uh, and the communities that uh, need to be uh, serviced with prevention services. That's a really good point. A really good point. You, I mean, look, it's, it's trite. You've heard it said, well, you can't arrest your way out of this. Well, the treatment people will also tell you you can't treat your way out of it. Right. So right. what you have to do is prevent it from the from the uh, onset. Stop it before it starts. Yeah. So, yes. you know, taking that one step further, you know, is there a program in place to distribute that, distribute having have maybe quarterly reality uh, meetings in communities where you've got this high concentration of overdoses where you bring together all the leaders and you say, hey, look, here's what we're looking at right here. Let's look at our streets. Now let's map this back to the schools and let's start talking about the schools and let's talk about what we're doing in this next quarter for prevention there. Well, we provide, we provide uh, weekly reports 
to all of our users uh, with information they could use to do just that in the hopes that they do do it. And it's amazed us what it would do. I mean, I thought, well, we're going to be able to identify spikes. That's, that's what the intent was. But, geez, after that, I'll give you another example. Um, I just rang a bell. We had a, a county that was experiencing spike spike after spike. Uh, uh, and then we saw a relationship with another county in another state that had corresponding spikes. So it, I went to my analyst and I said, there's got to be a drug trafficking organization that's responsible for this. Go in the system uh, and look, in our, look at our police files and let's see if any of the people in the one state that we have under uh, investigation are calling people that overdosed in another state. And they did, and immediately came up with like three drug trafficking organizations that were most likely responsible. We are our investigators then started working on those um, drug trafficking organizations. They prioritized them, took them down, and the spikes dropped. This is from Jeff Beeson, who sort of heads this program, but he he was telling me how the drugs were coming sort of from the southwest border through New York and into Baltimore City, and from there, it was spread out into the region. So using that data, um, the, those, those data points, they're able to sort of pinpoint a track of opioid. Wow, that's amazing. So um, because they have so many data points out there, they're able to, in essence, track the shipments along. Yeah, and like I said, the, a lot of that depends on um, the sharing of data across jurisdictions. So they're able to see sort of the spike in New York City and in cities in New Jersey. So um, yeah, so those so that data sharing is, is really key in in this effort. So actually, the one of the people who headed that program actually called themselves sort of the victim of their own success. Um, so this is about using data, not sort of proactive, but in the midst of a crisis. What do you do? What can data do? And here what they're trying to understand is, um, you know, what beds are available? Because the reality is there is usually more cases than there are beds available. And what um, the first responders used to have to do with, with the, is that they would have to call different treatment centers and figure out what beds are, are available and who they are admitting because certain centers treat, you know, uh, certain demographics or, or people at certain levels. Um, and so they created this bed finder tool, which is still in its pilot phase. Um, and the idea is to partner with treatment centers across the region um, and have them sort of update daily, uh, I believe it's twice a day, on what beds are available. So once uh, someone comes into these safe stations looking for treatment, they can immediately look up on their dashboard. There's a bed available some 30 miles away, maybe 10 miles away, and they can immediately send that person rather than having that person wait at the station while they try to figure this out. Um, because there is a small window of time um, that that uh, that they had to find a treatment center. Otherwise, there's a very real possibility for the person who comes in to sort of change their mind, and then they 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 lose ability to help him yeah. or her. So it isn't quite rolling yet. Um, they're just working with six centers, um, and they're kind of piling, making sure that 
the data gets through right, that people, uh, that the treatment centers are going to be, um, you know, updating as, as much as they say, because this is very dependent on collaboration, right? Um, so, but by the end of their, uh, you know, test run, they're hoping to work with over 70 centers across the region. Wow, excellent. Well, you've uncovered some very innovative programs that are making a difference out there or will make a difference very shortly. Anything else that you discovered in your research that you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, yeah, so so data has its limitations, right? Um, we can't depend on data for everything. So a lot of this is uh, helpful for cities, but also there are a lot of caveats um, especially with the new experimental program in CARI. Um, there are certain concerns that this might run into privacy issues, um, ethical concerns. It might be used to target certain communities, which, you know, isn't unfounded. Um, there was a case back in um, 2016 where sort of this, sewage-based drug epidemiology was sort of used to trace back, um, oh, sorry, trace back to a certain drug lab. Um, so, you know, concerns are not unfounded about the privacy um, and ethical issues of new source of data collection. So it'll be interesting to see how everything plays out, um, the good and the bad, and how, um, you know, how this will need to be tweaked in order to assure citizens that this is to help the people and not to punish them. I just wanted to take a minute to make note of a resource that Tom and I did not have an opportunity to talk about, and that is the overdose spike response framework that they developed to go along with ODMAP. It's actually a companion guide for ODMAP stakeholders. And just to read you a bit of the introduction so that you know what it's about, um, this framework is a compilation of recommendations for coordinated responses to overdose spikes that are identified by ODMAP. During the preparation of this framework, the authors conducted informational interviews and meetings with stakeholders, including... Um, but not limited to public health, public safety, emergency management, first responders, community organizations, healthcare systems, and the media. Where available, promising practices and examples from the field are provided within this document. The examples are designed to provide ideas as to how existing resources can be customized during overdose spikes. Great document, 27-page document. We're going to publish that uh, along with this uh, this podcast. And, of course, you'll have uh, contact information for Tom and his team and, uh, and for any communities that decide that they would like to uh, roll out the ODMAP program. You'll have all the support in the world. We've been joined today by Linda Poon, an assistant editor at CityLab, covering science and urban technology, including smart cities and climate change. We've also been joined by Tom Carr, the executive director of the High Intensity Drug Trafficking Areas Program in Washington, D.C., who led the development of the Overdose Detection Mapping Program, an innovative program that was profiled in an article titled The Race to Learn What's Really Happening in the Opioid Crisis. It should be noted 
The OD map is now in use in 37 states by 1,300 users across our country, and it has now documented over 34,000 overdoses to date. The program is available free of charge to help communities and agencies make a difference in the opioid epidemic. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.